Welcome back to the film experience. This is another edition of the Supporting Actress Smackdown. Um, I'm your host, Nathaniel, and I'm very excited to introduce the panel. This time we're going to be talking about 1986, which means we'll be talking about A Room with a View, The Color of Money, Hannah and Her Sisters, Children of a Lesser God, and uh, Crimes of the Heart. The nominees for performance by an actress in the supporting role are... Maggie Smith in A Room with a View. Piper Laurie and Children of a Lesser God. Diane Reese from Hannah and Her Sisters. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in The Color of Money. Tess Hopper in Crimes of the Heart. I'm very excited to introduce the panel. First of all, we have Jonathan Diaz, who is a civil rights attorney and writer. Um, you can read him on Rough Cut Cinema. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is uh, great to be here. Um, you know, in my in my day job, I am a voting rights attorney, so I work on voting in elections. Um, and it is really exciting to finally get the chance to talk about votes that matter even more, which is, of course, <laughs> votes for Best Supporting Actors. Great. Um, and then we have Lynn Lee, also a lawyer and a contributor to the film experience. So some of you already know her. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, Daniel. Um, hi. Yes, I'm Lynn, and I've been with the film experience. Actually, I was trying to remember this. Um, at this point, maybe less than t- more than five, but less than ten years, I think. So for a while. Um, and, yeah, in, in my day job, I am a lawyer. For, I am a federal government employee and a lawyer, which makes me very much a D.C. person. Um, but really, uh, I I think my truest love has always been for, for movies um, and also TV and other kinds of pop culture. And since we are discussing one of my all-time favorite movies um, for this podcast, I, I will really try not to be too biased um, in favor of that one, but, uh, but I am enjoying talking about all the other ones, too. Great. Um, and then we have uh, Rob Kirby, who is a cartoonist, um, currently working on a graphic memoir about getting married um, called Marry Me a Little. Welcome, Rob. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm, I've am i been uh, participating as a voter uh, in the film experience. I, you know, I'm a devoted film experience reader. And so I was quite chuffed when I got an invitation to join this. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, my book, Marry Me a Little, I'm getting near to the end of it, and I'm hoping to have publishing news very soon, um, and I live in St. Paul. And you've had um, other books. I, I have read uh, oh, yeah. Boy Trouble. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. A couple volumes of that. Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, my book, Queer, was the first queer-oriented book to win the Ignatz, which is uh, it's kind of like the... Golden Globe of indie comics, I guess. It's not as <laughs> prestigious as an as an Eisner, but it's it's pretty coveted. So that was nice. Hopefully less corrupt. Oh yeah, a lot, <laughs> much less. Thank you. Not not at all. It's not at all corrupt. Okay. Um, you you have uh, been a devoted uh, voter. Um, we always welcome reader votes for the Smackdowns as well. And Rob has uh, voted many times. So I'm very excited to actually speak to you about and and i also want to say like thank you so much for like making me watch all these movies that i so many of them i never would have watched seriously yeah 
And uh, finally, uh, Claudio Alves is a Portuguese film critic and a regular contributor to the film experience, so you know him as well. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm a huge fan of the SmackDown since the Stinky Little Day, so this is always a pleasure. Yes. Um, so this time we're talking about 1986, um, and uh, Lynn was saying before we began that, that the order that she watched them in affected her, and she liked the performances more and more as she went, um, because she started with Crimes of the Heart, which was probably wise. I saved Crimes of the Heart to the end, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was tough to get through. So let's start with Crimes of the Heart. Um, let's get it over with quickly. I saw this in 1986, and I do not remember it being as bad as it is now, but maybe that's just me. Uh, maybe uh, some of you had different reactions, but it won the Pulitzer for for drama, which I, I'm baffled. Maybe it was better on the stage? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Okay, I'm going to, I'll start really quickly. Like, I'm old enough to have seen that movie in the theater when it came out, and we all really liked it. We thought, oh, that's so great. Blah, blah, blah. Um, when I watched it again, I, I had my heart, I was excited. You know, I hadn't seen it since. And really quickly on, I started getting really irritated with the, the quirk, the overly quirk character, uh, characters. And, uh, uh, and there were certain things, did you see that little Confederate flag thing somewhere like on their wall, um, in their house? Um, and the way the black male character was once again an adjunct character, like his, Life really didn't matter except for how he was, how he affected the white people. And as far as what do we think of Tess Harper? I wrote that she was playing a broad cartoon villain. And that it didn't really go much deeper than that, I thought. But actually, I kind of felt for her because <laughs> they, those sisters were uh, very problematic and she <laughs> was trying to get them, like, you know, she was. Basically, saying they were a disgrace to the family, but you're meant to sort of love all of their neuroses, which include murder, <laughs> which include murder and seducing teenage boys, and like all sorts of behavior that you're supposed bleaching to your eyebrows, like yeah. just laying the look That's awful. Cool. Yeah. The worst crime, crime of, of the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I. I had not seen this movie before. To me, Crimes of the Heart was just kind of like a mainstay of the high school theater circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, since, you know, it's got a lot of girl parts, and so high school uh, theater directors love that. Um, and so I was, I was kind of looking forward to seeing, like, a real production of it with real actors, most of whom I like. And there was just, to me, almost, like, no recognizable human behavior in this movie. Um, I do think that describing Tess Harper as like a cartoon villain is correct, but also she seemed the most human to me um, because to me, I thought, I mean, I love Diane Keaton and this is maybe the worst I think she's ever been in, in a movie. Yes. Agreed. Um, so bad. It really, the thing it reminded me of the most, unfortunately, was Hillbilly Elegy because it just seemed like bad southern drag and like all of these all of these people are playing caricatures of the south and none of them are really playing real people um and it's it's funny that lynn mentioned earlier that the order that you watch them in makes a difference because i watched this 
back to back with Hannah and her sisters. Mm. Um, so two movies about three sisters and, you know, the dynamics and the relationships between them. And it was just like night and day. This, it was, it was rough. It was not, not a fun sit, Crimes of the Heart. I think what threw me off almost from the very beginning was it just everything about the production screamed 80s and not in a good, well, 80s plus 80s Southern, if that's a thing. And it was just between the hair and the music or the, the scoring and, uh, Yes, and obviously the acting. I just I felt like I was in some weird Twilight Zone universe when I was watching it because you know they don't make that things like that anymore, and I think that's good. But it was just sort of funny because I'm sure, yeah, if you were watching it at the time, maybe it seemed more, you know, like with the time. I also I wasn't sure. I didn't know a lot about this movie, but with that cast, and you know, I love movies about sibling relationships. I feel like there should be more of them. And I thought, oh yes, maybe this would be a good counterpoint to Hannah and her sisters. And I was just like, what? is this when I was watching it and um you know I gotta say that even though there was a lot of overacting all around and I do think Keaton was the worst yeah in some ways I feel like with Tess Harper I remember thinking and I wrote this I don't think she's bad it's just she's very one note both in her writing and her performance it's just you know she is this yes she's a bad woman but she's also just sort of the nosy next door neighbor and um and I guess she gets her come up at the end, but there's just nothing really interesting either about her or their performance. So, and I'm not sure that the actress Harper could have done very much more with that. But the other funny thing is that I actually thought Sissy Spacek came out the best in, um, besides of the three sisters, even though she had the craziest character, she mm. actually felt the least crazy as a performance, if that makes any sense. Um, well, isn't she from actually, isn't she from Texas? I, I think it's how yeah. her accent seemed the least corny of all of them, but yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe that also affected her performance, too, but um, yeah, so so yes, I was, and yeah, the racial politics of this and this, oh. you know, every kind of politics of this was just very squicky to watch, so, so I, yeah. I have a confession to make about this movie. I, w- you know, I was young in 1986, and I was still like learning my love of cinema. Um, this is the mid to late 80s, or when I totally became like a uh, film obsessive. And I remember I was still like discovering what great acting was, you know. <laughs> and I remember watching this, and at the time, Jessica Lange was like the actress, right? So I remember sitting in the theater thinking. Oh, she's playing. I don't know why this registered so much, but the only thing I remembered about the movie was that I remember when she plays scenes with different characters, like her, the way her voice changes, not the accent, but just like the way she speaks to people. And I was like, Oh, that's such a fascinating thing. So at the time I thought Jessica Lange is amazing in this movie. (laughs) And now I'm watching it. I'm like, she's not amazing, but I, I still clocked that performance choice that she speaks to the different sisters in different ways and then of course her voice takes on a whole new thing when she's talking to Sam Shepard the man she's toying with in the movie um and I remember thinking Sissy's basic was hilarious which I did not think this time but I at the time that's what must have been what people thought because she was Oscar nominated. Oh, Spirit. she was, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah. She um she was charming, I thought. Yeah. And she won the globe. Really? Yeah. Oh, for comedy? For comedy or musical, yes. Oh, wow. She definitely comes off the best, I think, of of the main cast. I would agree with that. Oh, by far, yes. Which is, yeah, which is crazy, because as you said, she's, like, it's the strangest character. It's problematic, but, anyways, yeah. 
<laughs> maybe it's her being from the South that maybe she gets some of that eccentricity. Because there is definitely, I mean, I hear from people from the South that there is a Southern ethos. There's a, there's Southern eccentricities, you know, and I think she probably just understood the character best, you know, and, yeah, the, and I, the family and the situation. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Florida, which is the South sometimes, yeah. um, <laughs> depending on, on what part of it you're in. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that, that Sissy Spacek was, you know, she seemed the most natural and she was in a lot of ways, despite having the loudest character, it was the quietest performance of the three sisters, um, where Diane Keaton is just all over the place and, and Lang is making a lot of choices. Yeah. Sometimes too many. Um, Spacek, I think, found the most like humanity in, in her character, despite there maybe being the least on the page. Um, well, even, yeah. even handling the, the comic tone, which is very, like, hard to pinpoint in the movie because, and maybe this is why it works better on stage, because I don't think the direction of the movie necessarily, like, gets the tone of it. Uh, but it's sort of like gallows humor most of the time, but the tone or the way the movie looks doesn't imply that. Like, nothing about it screams, like, black comedy. But Sissy's face, like, seems to get that because, like, the scene where, you know, it's like this joke about suicide, which is, of course, you know, you can't be making a movie with jokes like that unless you're confident about your tone. That big, like, comic set piece of her trying to kill herself in multiple ways <laughs> um, shouldn't work at all um, unless you're, but there's something about her nonchalance about it that made it, I did laugh once during that scene where the the chandelier is just sort of trailing behind her and she's just not yeah. even noticing it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's no it's no Groundhog Day uh, suicide <laughs> montage from, from the stage musical, um, but, you know, she did... She did get a couple of laughs out of me. Um, I had a lot of questions about her methods. Yeah. And like, do you, do you need to light the oven when you're sticking your head in it? I don't think so. Because the gas. <laughs> but burn she, your head. Yeah. Yeah. She was not, she, she had a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have to say, I had watched Crimes of the Heart before, I think when I was a teenager. And even at the time, I thought it was, it was fine. Maybe a bit mediocre. But rewatching it, oh dear! <laughs> it 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 was a shock how how much I disliked it now. And it seems impossible that this particular group of actresses would produce something that I dislike this much, since I love them all. But as you said, Keaton, I think has never been worse. It's just, and even the performances I like, like City Spacex and to some extent Lang. Are, are very insular, despite this being an ensemble piece in some regard. It feels like they're each playing to themselves and not really as a group. And contrasting that to Anne and her sisters, and for example, that, that, that converse, circular conversation around the table. Oh, that was so good, but. It, it's such a different type of complementary acting. Yeah. It's just well, fascinating. I, I think that, I mean, I'm happy to move on to Hannah and her sisters. I think that it's obviously like when you have a director who's in charge of the tone and all the actors are on the same wavelength. But but really, Crimes of the Heart, it's not that they're in different movies. They're all in that movie. It's just that, you know, that movie is, you know, not helping them at all. And especially that seems true of Diane Keaton. Like, like did 
did Bruce Beresford not think to rein her in at all? Because like, yeah, some of her gestures are so broad. It's like those, I kept thinking of showgirls where people make fun of her (laughs) all the time. Like when she gets mad and she like throws her fries in the air and things like that, that is the level that Diane Keaton is going for in every scene. It's the kind of thing where if if this had been the stage cast and, you know, if she's reprising a role from on stage, I don't know that it would have made it good. Yeah. But it would have, some of those choices would have at least been a little bit more understandable. If you're like, well, she was playing to the back of the house. She didn't modify her performance for the camera. Right. But she doesn't have that excuse, unfortunately. Yeah, and she's not even a stage actor. So that's like <laughs> even the crazier thing. It's like, what was happening there? I was really struck by the way nobody seems to listen to each other as a performer. Everybody's doing their thing, but the reactions to me are they just seem to be waiting for their own moment to show up, especially Tess Harper, which it, it's a character detail, of course, that she, she doesn't really listen to the others and she just barges into their life and like a hurricane, she criticizes everything and just, just leaves. And you can still hear her shouts from next door. <laughs> but I just wanted more modulation from her. I think my favorite part of the performance was when in that very big last scene with Keaton, yeah. in some of the shots you can see her grinning. I think she's breaking character <laughs> because they're <laughs> running around. But it was, oh, at least she's having fun with this. So um, that's good in some level, but it, I think it was the only point in the performance that I was really with her. And it's sad because it's probably the more, the most, you know, technically faulty part of the performance in that regard. That in some shots you can see her breaking a smile while she, while she's not uh, shouting at Keaton. Well, yeah, and that last scene though is is really crazy. Like why? Like, why is she trying to escape, and why does the movie spend so much time on her, like, running up on top of a pile of logs and jumping onto a roof of a shed? I mean, it's it's so wacky. Because it's funny. That's, you're supposed to laugh. It's so delightfully slapstick, and, and, and it's so clearly, like, a sitcom-y device, and it's just, it's just so dumb. I kept thinking, we please move on from this? And, you know, I actually, <laughs> last night, I... You know, I had to like beef up my comments because they were, I was actually going to, they were going to be published and I watched bits of that performance again and it just, it just goes on and on and, and it's just so dumb. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with what, what y'all have said, but I will say that this was not the nomination that baffled me the most. Oh, what was that? Uh, Piper Laurie, but we'll get there. <laughs> well, let's, let's jump there. Children of a Lesser God, why not? Um, did it baffle you just because she's in so few scenes? Yeah, it was it was a real head scratcher. I just, you know, I was expecting there to be more for her to do. Um, not to say that she was worse than Tess Harper, because I actually think she's quite, you know, quite good. She just never never really has a scene for me that justifies her casting. I mean, this is at at that point, you know, she's already a two time nominee. Um, you. You know, I had never seen Children of a Lesser God before, but, you know, I had always heard about it as this, like, real showcase piece for Marley Matlin. And, you know, the lead actress performance is what, you know, people really talk about when it comes to this movie. And when I saw, okay, Piper Laurie is playing her mother, I kept expecting there to be some moment, some, some you know, scene between them. And it's a much quieter performance than I was expecting. It's, 
you know, very subtle and they're, you know, she does it, she's not in it very much. And so I was surprised that that was the kind of thing that the Academy gravitated towards, especially, you know, in a field of otherwise like much bigger, showier performances. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely don't understand the nomination either. And I love Piper Laurie. I think she's great. Um, and it was nice to see her. I mean, I'm used to seeing her in things like Carrie and Dario Argento's Trauma and then playing Catherine Martell on Twin Peaks, where she's, you know, where she's often villainous or at least scheming um, and, or flat out nuts. Um, uh, they, they, she just doesn't have that much to do with the, her dialogue. And her again, I watched this scene also last night because I, I couldn't even remember it. And I only watched it like a month or two ago. Um, even the dialogue she gets is so banal and so like, you know, yeah, yeah, because your father, blah, blah, blah. It was just like from, you know, one life to live or something that, you know, she, she just doesn't have enough to do. And to me, the nomination was um, just an instant also ran there. There was, I, I don't get it. Well, I, I think in this case, like children of lesser God is such uh speaking of something that's also like a play um, and, it, that it's such an like an actor showcase um, because like all, you know, all of them were nominated and, um, and it's just like something the actors would, the actors branch would gravitate towards it's a very interpersonal drama. Um. Do you think it was like a, like it was like um, a cocktail nomination? Because Children of a Lesser God, I, this is the first time I'd seen it, but it was, you know, it was pretty popular, right? Yeah, and, it was pretty and, popular. And it, it also, um, you know, obviously at the time, like, uh, representation was much more lacking in the 80s, and it was a big, big deal that an actual deaf actress got, like, a leading role. Um, and so there was a lot of conversation about that. And I also think uh, maybe this is just not something that was conscious, but it's interesting that Piper Laurie, in the year that The Hustler got a sequel that was also an Oscar player, um, that Piper Laurie showed up in the Oscar race again too, because of course she's in The Hustler, and then Paul Newman makes a sequel <laughs> 25 years later. Um, so I thought that was an interesting thing that might have been. I don't remember it being discussed at the time, but I, I was also much younger and not there wasn't as much discussion of the Oscar race in the media as there is now. Um, you know, Interestingly, I actually watched The Hustler not too long before I watched this run of movies because I knew I I was going to watch The Color of Money, and it was like it was just sort of interesting watching Piper Laurie in that, and then in this. Um, as for this performance, I I mean I I think I basically agree with Jonathan and and <clears throat> Robert. I don't feel like there was enough for her to do, and she wasn't given a lot in the writing, but but she's really she's really good in her three scenes, um, and so. I found it really hard to rate her performance as a result. I mean, I actually thought her character seems to do a, a 180 from the first time we see her and, and then the next time we see her. And some of that is sort of explained in the not very good dialogue, but but most of it really isn't. And, I mean, I, I think, you know, I give her credit that I think she was pretty convincing, both as the sort of cold mother in the first part and then the one who's trying to make up for that in the second part but I just I just wish that that had been fleshed out more both for her and for the movie I totally agree with that I also had trouble with that transition uh, because you expect her scenes with Marley Matlin to be more um, combative Um, and then 
And it would also be better for the drama, maybe, <laughs> if there was more tension in those scenes. So I think that they're, uh, I actually think the performance was lacking in that way because, like, Marley Matlin in that movie is definitely bringing the sort of, um, I, I don't want to say aggression, but there's something about the performance that she's willing to be confrontational in every scene. Um, and so I thought there would be a little bit more of that between them, which I think would have helped. Because yeah, Lori's very passive in all of her yeah. scenes. Yeah. And it almost feels like there's an there's another scene missing, like on the cutting yeah. room floor in between those two. Well, and also, like, you know, like, in there, there's an earlier scene in the movie. I actually think it's a fairly good movie. I don't know what y'all thought of it, but um, it's, like, fairly affecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's... a a great scene with William Hurt and Marley Matlin early on where she's sort of aggravated at how slow he expects to sign. I mean, he's fluent in sign language, but, you know, she signs very fast, like much faster than her deaf friends. And, um, and he has a little trouble keeping up. And then when we see Piper Lori Layler, who we didn't, who we weren't even aware whether or not she learned sign language because she was so, that scene between her and William Hurt was actually more interesting in a way because you she's like keeping so many things close to her best. And then there was no, I didn't get any sense that that was a point of contention between them, but she was obviously not very fluent in sign language as compared to the William Hurt character. Anyway, just something that kind of bothered me about those scenes. Claudia, you've been very quiet. I I think I'm more... I think I like the performance much more than most of you. Um, I think part of the reason why I don't really mind that our arc is segmented and we sort of lose the the middle of it, the transformation part of our character, is because from our very first scene, she reminds me so much of Macklin. I was I was impressed by how much the way she regards hurt um, replicates how Matlin herself reacts to him in their first scenes together. There is a, perhaps not an open hostility, but there is a, a briskness to the way she regards him, to the way she talks to him, to the way her expressions are closed off, and even how she inhabits the space around him. It says, as if even without him doing anything necessarily combative, she's all, she's ready for a, for an aggressive response from him. She's ready to, to defend herself, and that reminded me a lot of Macklin. Even before they appear on screen together, they already felt like mother and daughter to me, and I thought that was that was really interesting, especially because, as you say, she's got so so few scenes to delineate that connection. That to me, even if they're working apart, the actresses managed to suggest that, suggest what the script doesn't really give them. That's a great. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really um insightful, Claudio. I think that's yeah. I I, I think you're right. Thinking back on it, yeah, totally. They 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 matched up as mother daughter as related, and I think that's due to Pipe a lot of it to Piper Laurie's skill as an actress, and probably Marley Matlin as well. I don't think the script helped them that much, but I think they found it together. I think yeah. I didn't think of it that way. That's that, that's why we do this these discussions, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think one thing, I mean, maybe some of you will have felt this too. One thing I found distracting about the movie is Sound of Metal was so recently, and Sound of Metal was so strong, and the filmmaking was so invested in sort of putting you inside the world 
of silence and Marley Matlin has these big speeches about, you know, coming inside her world. Um, and yet the filmmaking doesn't really do that. Even in scenes where you're meant to sort of feel that, like when she's swimming or like when she's laying in bed and like looking out the window, there's all these like sounds, things happening in the soundscape or like the score or, and I'm like, the choices seemed odd there to me if it was about being inside of her world. And maybe that's just an unfair comparison because Sound of Metal was so recently. Do, do you think, I mean, I, I think, wasn't Children of a Lesser God written by a man? Um, but it was, it was directed by a woman because it's the yeah, first, it uh, okay. it's the first film directed by a woman to be nominated for Best Picture. I, I, I still felt like most of it we're seeing it through William Hurt's eyes. And I think William Hurt is actually very good. And I think he had a really challenging role. Oh my God. I can imagine yeah. him to reinterpret everything for the audience, like all the, like half of what she says, you know, um, yeah, very difficult. Um, but I still felt like it was really more invested in him than her. Totally. I don't know. Yeah. Also, I, I, I think that, again, this is probably more for the audience, but I really wish that they had just subtitled Madeline and not had him, have him say everything that she was saying. Um, hmm. I mean, I don't know that that would have made us come inside her world that much more, but, but yeah, it just seemed to make it that much more about him and us hearing his voice and being in his perspective than hers. That's interesting. I have, I have kind of mixed feelings about that because although it does kind of center him more, I do also feel like it gives the movie a chance to really sit in their dynamic and you're very focused on their back and forth. Um, And because he is, translating for her in real time, I feel like it almost made me pay more attention to her. Almost like, since he's the point of view character, he's watching her so intently and he's kind of transcribing her in real time that it made, I almost followed his focus onto her. Um, and I do, I do wish that it had been, uh, more her movie, um, because I think that's what I was expecting. And I watched Coda last night, which she is in and is great. And, um, and that movie also, more like Sound of Metal uses the soundscape and, and, and the filmmaking to really kind of try to place you in, in those characters' shoes. Um, but I can't, I couldn't help thinking while I was watching Children of a Lesser God that there is an alternate world where maybe it comes out 20 years later and it's the exact same movie, no changes. Um, and Marley Matlin gets campaigned and supporting instead of lead. Um, because the movie is so, is so much from William Hurt's perspective. And I mean, what a tragedy that would have been. Um, yeah. Don't speak that easily to the world. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I wanted her to be more centered in, in the movie, which I, I mean, I, I generally really liked. Um, I think it's, I think it's quite good. Um, but I wanted, I wanted her to be the star of the show as good as William Hurt is. And more, and like Nate Nathaniel said, like, um, if it had been more cinematic, but again, it's based on a play. So that made, made I will say that I, the... yeah. No, I was going to say that's absolutely true, but I actually was struck in different ways, and I, I still don't think Crimes of the Heart was very good, but I actually think both of the movies, despite being based on plays, didn't strike me as being especially stage bound. Like, I think they both did a decent job, you know, opening up, um, and making them reasonably cinematic. But yeah, nothing, you know, they could have definitely, this one definitely could have done more. I can say that one aspect of the film that I was very frustrated with, and which reminded me 
of The Sound of Metal. Not not in that one did better than the other, but that they did, they both do sort of the same things. That the blocking and the compositions really hide the actors the actors' hands, so you can't really see the signing. For a deaf person mm-hmm. watching this film, they will not be able, especially in the classroom scenes and a lot of the intimate conversations between William Hurt and Marlon. Like was too close. Yeah, it was too close, and so much of their dynamic is how they they circle around each other how they they relate with to each other with their bodies and I almost wanted it to be less cinematic in terms of using lots of close ups and getting really close to the actors that you can't which you can't do on stage. And wanted it to be more in wide shot and medium shot instead of always on close up. And that if you can't hear William Hurt or you don't have subtitles, all those conversations are unintelligible for a non listening audience. And with, but in, in a certain regard, I agree that that is part of his character and part of the way the film criticizes the savior complex. Right. And and because of that, it annoyed me that um, Piper Laurie also speaks while signing, very inorganically like him. And I, as much as I like the performance, I don't really think she justifies that choice. It seemed like she was just doing it for the audience's benefit and not so much as an organic part of her characterization. But isn't that, I mean, I, I'm i not one to speak on this, so someone please correct me if I'm wrong, since I don't, I can't speak sign language, but isn't that kind of a common thing for people who it's not something they learned as an adult to speak to, like, they're they're so used to speaking that it's like another interpret, like they're interpreting themselves. Maybe I'm I mean, wrong. It it just seemed um, out of place considering none of the other characters apart from her during the rest of the film do that. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like she was just doing it because she's the most important character after them. And it's important for the the audience to not to be too distracted by her hands and not be too distracted by possible subtitles. Like I'd have loved to see their conversation just with subtitles. And... Mm. And paying attention to how sluggish Piper Laurie's signing is, which to me speaks of out of practice of how long her daughter has been away from from her life. I didn't really think about the framing that much, but you're right, because now that I think about it, because when I do the SmackDowns for the actual post, you know, I do the, the, the GIF photos that show like five stills of the actresses. And I was trying to get a photo that showed Piper Laurie signing and they, it would go by so quick because the camera was like framing her face. So like when her, only the signs where her hands had to come up at her face were where I could capture a photo like that. So you wonder if that's a product. I wonder if Claudia, what you're, what you describe is a product of the stage adaptation. Um, And the fact that on stage they would, they're, you know, they're not typically subtitles in the theater. And so, you know, they, have to verbally translate all the lines for the theater audience. Um, although, you know, they can project subtitles if they want to. Um, but I, I, I wonder if they felt more bound to the text of the play and keeping Hurt and Lori speaking those, those words instead of just having them sign. Perhaps I can, I can see that point. And not to say that that's the right choice, but sure. I just wish that in their pursuit of trying to make the movie cinematic, maybe they wouldn't have relied so much on 
tight close-ups and maybe tried to use silence in a way theater really can't, but film often can get away with. I thought their choices and their priorities were perhaps not the the ones that I agree would make the film a better experience. And despite this, I like the film. I have to say, and I think its intentions are good, and I really like the three main performances. It's just a detail that I didn't like the first time I watched the film, and it's just kept fermenting in my mind and rewatching it this time around. I when the big conversation between Matlin and Laurie happens after Matlin returns home, it just felt, oh, it's not just her doing this and mm. this feels somewhat fake. Yeah. Well I ha I have seen this on stage actually. I saw the Broadway revival of it and uh usually I you know, when something is adapted to the screen, the opening up that uh, filmmakers do is very irritating to me because I don't mind sitting in one space in a movie. <laughs> um, as long as, like, the pacing and the cutting and everything else is thinking of it cinematically because Crimes of the Heart, like, there's a lot of passages that are within the house where they're not opening it up, but there's these weird, weird, like, sluggish moments where you're waiting for somebody to re-enter the stage type of thing in Crimes of the Heart, but I actually thought the opening up in uh, Children of the Lesser God was very successful because um, it didn't, none of it felt inorganic. It just felt like how how it would actually be happening, whereas the stage can't do that, you know, <laughs> with scenes where they go to each other's houses and um, and then the outdoor conversations. Um, I, I just thought that the opening up was really successful, although I agree that the camera should have backed up a little. But did anybody else feel that way watching Crimes of the Heart? Like, wait, did somebody forget their entrance? <laughs> like, there's these weird, like, lags where they go in and out of rooms. There's no, they didn't speed it up. Like nothing in the editing or the direction suggested that, you know, you should cut to the next scene. Well, I was, you know, I was kind of like crapping on the direction earlier and I'll just say, I think it was, yeah, I think it was poorly, not that well directed. I, yeah. I don't think it, that director was, had a vision. I don't know. Maybe that's mean, but it's just, yeah. Yeah, it seemed, it's a bunch of stuff stitched together that, you know. Well, the, the other three movies that we have are all by, like, major directors, um, so we should probably move on to those. Um, <laughs> let's talk about The Color of Money. Um, we'll save the two most famous movies for last, Hannah and her sisters in a room with a view. Uh, the Color of Money, uh, I feel like this one is not discussed much in the Scorsese filmography, um, but it's definitely Martin Scorsese through and through from the opening narration framing um, to like the shot, the, the crazy editing from Thelma Schumacher in the pool scenes. Um, it was definitely a Scorsese movie. The music cues, I really enjoyed it. I had confession, I had never seen this, even though it won Paul Newman the Oscar and it was a, an embarrassing gap in my viewing. So I'm really glad I watched it. What did you like about Nathaniel? Cause like I, I, I quite frankly, pool is so uninteresting to me and, and, well, I I liked I I I just liked the the story was not I definitely liked that it went in directions I wasn't expecting like especially like the last act I just did not it did not develop the way I thought it was going to develop um like their relationships kept shifting rather than staying the same um 
and I thought it had real verve in the storytelling, even though I don't, I, I know how to play pool and I sort of know the rules, not of that particular, uh, I forget what they called it, but it's a very particular pool game because you don't have like the, you don't fill up all the pool balls into the triangle at the beginning of the game. Um, so I didn't quite understand the rules of that game, but I just thought it had so much verve and like the camera work was so fun. And like, I thought the performances were really good. Yeah, I, just did, it. I, I really liked the, um, I really love the gritty on location filming. That's, you know, that so much, so many films are so homogenous looking, you know, yeah. even movies I love, like more contemporary things, like say bridesmaids, you know, I love it, but it's, right. it has like a TV book. I mean, it's just blah. But yeah. this is it, it, this has this is where Scorsese really can shines. Um, I I confess I I just have no patience for Tom Cruise, especially like '80s era Tom Cruise. I, I still <laughs> think he's just he's so twerpy, and I really I really felt I wrote down that I thought that what was wrong with there was nothing wrong with Mestre Antonio in this. It was I, she just needed to be. I wanted her to be more the focus. I wish he could have been sidelined, Tom Cruise, and it could have been more about Paul Newman and Mestre Antonio, you know, driving things more. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I just and it was really and the male gazy stuff drove me nuts too. Like you know, and I've always been like this too. I'm not just like currently getting you know you know. I just I I just have never really vibed with a lot of Scorsese films. He's just not that interested in women. I think that his two best female characters are Alice and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is a real favorite of mine, an old favorite movie. And I love Lorraine Bracco's character in Goodfellas. I feel like they're really interesting. Master Antonio, I don't know, what did you guys think? Did you did you find did you find a lot of inner life coming out of her? Do you do you feel like I did. Yeah. Actually, I, I really loved her in this and I kind of felt I had, I had almost an opposite reaction of, than, than you did, Robert, because I was expecting her to be more sidelined. Um, having not seen The Color of Money before, I really thought that it was going to be the Cruz and Newman show. Um, and that it was going to be, you know, about like Newman mentoring Cruz and Master Antonio is just like the girlfriend on the sidelines in the way that like, you know, I, I love Martin Scorsese. I, I think that this movie is a success almost entirely because of him. He makes Poole look so dynamic. Um, and Thomas Schoonmaker, obviously, is a big part of that. Um, but, you know, he is a very masculine-oriented fo- filmmaker. A lot of his movies are about men and the relationships between men. And that's um, fine. Right. And, and, but, but women often get short tripped in, in Martin Scorsese movies, aside from, like, maybe The Age of Innocence, and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, but, and so I was expecting, like, maybe at best, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio will get like the Vera Farmiga treatment where she'll like get a couple of good scenes and like be the one woman and then like that's it. Um, but as the movie goes on, I really felt like Cruz got more and more sidelined. And to me, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's Carmen, it, she is the real mentee for Paul Newman. She yep. gets agree with that. what he does, his like his whole student of behavior speech that he gives like near the beginning. She gets it right away, and the, she is kind of the fulcrum point between these two men, and you, we as the audience take our cues for how to react to them based on how she does, and she sees right through Tom Cruise's bullshit the whole time, and is just like slowly picking things up from Newman. She's in on the game right away. I thought there was just so much intelligence 
to her performance so much. Um, she was so much more dominant than I was expecting her to be. She like went toe to toe with Paul Newman, which is, you know, not everyone can do. Um, I was so, so pleasantly surprised, um, at how, how engaging she was. Yeah, I was too. And also I was, I kept thinking afterwards, like, why didn't she have a bigger career? Yeah. Oh, where is she? That's where is she? She hasn't been in a movie since The Perfect Storm, I think. Maybe that's not. Wow. But yeah. Another big boy movie, right? You know, like she yeah. was like the woman in that. Well, know. then she, you know, she, she was in Scarface, of course. Um, yeah. but yeah. that was before, yeah. uh, the, yeah. but you really think this would have led to, I mean, she did have some leading roles after this, but it just, her princess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is yeah. she in television a lot now? I, I, maybe she has some TV, but I don't think she's really as much. I don't know. She did a decent amount of theater, I think. That might be what she's been focusing on. She just strikes me as a really intelligent actress. I, yeah. I, was, I was taken with her. I, she was my second favorite of all these. Um, Lynn, Lynn, but again, I just didn't vibe with the movie. So, Lynn, uh, as, yeah. the, as the female in the group, <laughs> I know this is unbalanced, <laughs> but what did you think of the male gaze aspect and, the, and her point in the narrative? So I go back and forth on Scorsese generally. Um, I actually thought this movie, I, I was not bothered by the male gaze so much. I mean, there is, there are some, and, and for her, I, I did like her performance a lot. I, I do feel like she withheld a lot, but that was very deliberate. It's, it is a very intelligent performance. And I also remember thinking that I, she, her relationship with Tom Cruise's character, I kept thinking was almost more maternal than romantic. I mean, or maybe not maternal, but you know, she definitely, he was her charge. She definitely knew how to rein him in and how to like let him out and how to manage him. Um, and yes, I think she was taking some pointers from Newman's character and, and I liked that dynamic a lot. You know, the one, I guess, sort of weird, um, episode was, you know, when she kind of puts the moves on Newman's character, and that to me was probably her one, her character's one mistake in the movie, but even then it's kind of like it made me wonder, well, you know, it would have been a more interesting movie if those two had been, had been the ones who were together and who, and who were driving this train as, as others alluded. Um, but, yeah, I, I went back and forth on her because I liked her performance, but I liked a couple of the other ones a lot more. So I feel like I downgraded her a little bit in my part. I, w- I really wish we could give half-star ratings. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, she's definitely one you remember. And I'd say having watched The Hustler before I watched The Color of Money, I remember even though I really enjoyed The Color of Money, I remember thinking I thought the whole point at the end of The Hustler was that, you know, he Paul Newman's character was going to – get out of the hustling business, and I guess he never did. It almost, I feel like sometimes it gets considered as like, well, this is the career Oscar for Paul Newman. He had never won before. He's good. I think he's really good. He's great. Yeah. yeah. He puts, he, you feel like the weight of time on the character between the movies. Um, and he's still got that like twinkle in his eye where like, yeah, I, he would absolutely con me in a pool hall. He's, <laughs> he's very charming. I'm when has Paul Newman ever been bad? When I've never, I can't oh, think of any any time I've ever seen him be less than excellent. And also, it's unfair how ridiculously sexy he is. Yeah. Even nineteen eighty six. To look like Paul Newman and be that talented is yeah. uh, it's too it's too much. Yes. Yeah. Fair. 
But uh, can I would also like to give a shout out to Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. <laughs> his, like second or third movie, I think. And he's so good in it. He just has so one talent. But he's just great. Like you can totally see why he had a career after this. Um, and he's way down on the cast list. It's like he's on like the fifth page of credits or something. Well, he only has one scene really, though he makes yeah. the most of it. Yeah. Yeah, he has a, for those who haven't seen it, he has a really great cameo as, like, a guy who's hustling uh, the hustler himself. Um, really compelling performance. And I would say the thing about Master Antonio, she's incredibly compelling. I remember re-watching this film, and just I couldn't call my eyes away from her during the first scene. How she's sort of in a pose of disinterest, but her eyes keep moving around, taking in everything. She's always paying attention to what's around her, to the choices each of the other actors and each of the characters is making. And I love how amused she is during the the first uh, half of the movie. It's like she's always trying to, to hide a smile of amusement at Vincent's hand, antics. And to me, that's what really surprised me this time around was because I was so focused on her was how much she changes when she comes back. Yeah. I felt that instead of, you know, trying to hide a smile, she's always trying to hide a grimace in those second scenes. And her stillness seems much realer or boredom and her sort of disinterest in Vincent. It seems that the, the, like the blossom of romance has just withered away and now they're just really a professional partnership. Yeah. And just comparing their first scenes to their last one, their dynamic has completely changed during the time Newman wasn't around and the film wasn't around. And I thought, because thinking back to Tess Harper, she's the only person who really doesn't get to change, but all of the other characters that these actresses tackle really go through a, a transformation throughout the film, even if we don't get to see the the part where they transform. In this case, because just the narrative is away from her, and when we return, something has changed. We don't know exactly why or what, but the actors, at least she, not so much Cruz, but she really gives us a sense that that a history, that the lives have gone gone on when the camera wasn't around. You know, beyond the margin of the narrative, she has a a life and their relationship as evolves. Well, I think that she, uh, one thing that is very stellar about her performance is I think she plants the seeds of that to the point where even though her shift is off screen in the section of the movie that's only Paul Newman's, um, she has totally planted all the seeds. So it totally feels organic when the character comes back and it's, and it's, she's more business and less, into her boyfriend because you've got that early on about her that it, that that's where that relationship was going to end up anyways, which is why I think that the, the, the plot and the dialogue about Newman manipulating Cruz into saying she's going to leave you <laughs> was he was, it was a manipulation tactic, but it was also true, you yeah. know, because he yeah. studying human behavior. The moment for me, and and Claudio kind of hit the nail on the head uh, with her with her opening scene where she's just so observant and so watching everyone is actually near the end when Cruz and Master Antonio come back in 
and reveal kind of the big hustle that they have been pulling to Newman. And Cruz is like a puppy dog, and he's just like all bluster and bravado, yes. and he's so proud of himself. He's like, I did it. The student has become the teacher. I'm the master now. Look what I did. Aren't you proud of me? Yes. Um, and just so like self-satisfied. And Master Antonio has almost no lines in that scene. But the whole time, she's watching Newman, and you can see on her face that she understands how this is hitting him, yeah. and that Newman is not proud of them, that he is devastated. Yeah. And, and she, that's when I, that's when it kind of all really clicks for me, like, oh, no, no, she is the real student. She understands human behavior. She can see, even though Newman is doing a very good job of hiding it, yeah. the impact that this betrayal has had on him. Um, and, you know, as it, this didn't come to me until right now, but as Claudia was describing that opening scene, Cruz, Cruz has big puppy dog energy like this whole movie. And she is very feline. Yeah. She is like a cat. She is always watching. She's pretending she's not interested, but she knows exactly what's happening all around her all the time. Um, and it's just, I, I think it's such a fabulous performance. Yeah. Talking about it makes me like it more, which is one of the interesting things about doing the SmackDowns is even after you do the grading and you write your little blurbs, like sometimes the conversation would be like, oh, yes, this was a very good performance. And, and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should like sometime <laughs> try to rewatch this thing that I really didn't care that much about. But again, anything I cared about was it was Newman and her. The, 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 yeah. And she, yeah, the, the rest of it, I just couldn't get into it. Well, um, I think I'm going to guess that all of you loved Room of the View because... Um, well, three yeah. of us definitely did. <laughs> yeah, so, but but since uh, since Claudio, Lynn, and I just did a huge retrospective of our Room of the View oh. on the site, um, I really want to hear uh, most of all from Rob and Jonathan um, because I think that Claudio and Lynn and I have more than... <laughs> said what we think of Maggie Smith in this movie. Brilliant. Okay. I feel like I, I gushed a lot about Color of Money, so Rob can go first. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I like A Room With a View. I'm not... I'm, I'm Again, I'm just not a real Merchant Ivory sort of guy. Mm-hmm. But I think this is like the apotheosis of their work. This is like the best thing they did, I, I feel. Um yeah, uh, well, we'll start with Maggie Smith. Okay, so I've seen Maggie Smith do so many things. I, I love Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith is really wonderful. Um, at this point, what she did here is I've seen it, her do it so many other times, like notes and variations on this performance in other performances, and I'm not saying she's repeating herself. It's just similar to other things that she's done. Um, but I, I, so I thought she was very poignant and I felt like she really captured Charlotte's loneliness and her, her kind of her inner knowledge that she's never going to find real fulfillment. You know, she's not, you know, like sexual fulfillment, intellectual, whatever. I, her scenes with Judy Dench are so, so poignant because you see Judy Dench reveling in these delightful stories and stuff. And, and Maggie Smith can only kind of look scandalized somewhat as she hears this stuff. Um, I feel like a really... With enjoyment. Yes, like, yes, like yes. She's clearly but, living... But a longing, a longing, too. <laughs> and and I, feel, I feel like the... 
I feel like Smith, Maggie Smith's best performance she would do a year, I think it was a year later uh, in The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, which I think is, a, I think she's really brilliant in it. And it's kind of the same thing, only that it's much darker. The mood is much darker and it's, it's a very kind of emotionally devastating film. Whereas uh, in Room with a View, she's, uh, her, whatever emotional devastation is much more, you know, it's very repressed, you know, because that, that, that's, you know, the story. That's her character. Um, yeah, I think it's very effective. Um, I, I, I admire it more. I'm not in love with the movie, but, you know, it's just, it's simply not the kind of movie that I generally tend to vibe to. Kind of like movies about pool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Sorry I put you through yeah. this. <laughs> What's that? Sorry I put you through this. That's no, no, it was so, I'm so happy. I, I again, even though the, I remember last year when I watched that ridiculous movie about Johann Strauss, I was so oh. happy to see it because I never would have seen it. And I, and I actually still think about that woman's performance, that her nutty, voracious performance, you know, where she looks, she was going to eat everybody alive in, around uh, yeah, her. Yeah, for, for um, listeners, that was the great waltz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so, of yeah. 1938. It's really it's valuable to do this. And, you know, sometimes yeah, you have to sit through things like I'm kind of I'm already watching my 2004 movies and I'm kind of dreading watching Hotel Rwanda because, you know, talk about a movie of subject matter I'm not going to enjoy watching, you know, genocide. You know, it's a real bu- it's a real bummer, but at least it's. A yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, yeah. but I I love Don Cheadle, you know, so. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's me with A Room with a View. You know, very good movie. Not exactly the kind of movie that I love, but, but, uh, I, I admire it. Um, I also, I have to say, Helena Bonham Carter, I did, boy, did she grow as an actress after this. I thought she was so dull in this, but I don't know. She was still young and. How about you, Jonathan? Yeah, I, so I am, I am ashamed to say that I have, had not seen a single Merchant Ivory movie until this one. Um, which, which is weird because like, you know, I, I love a British period piece. Um, but I guess just the reputation that I had built in my head of, of these Merchant Ivory movies was that they would be like these kind of stuffy literary, you know, kind of staid things. And I, I mean, the the exact opposite. Um, this movie's a blast. Um, I really, really loved it. Um, I really, really love Maggie Smith in it. Um, I think she is just so, delightful and is really, really good at playing the kind of ambivalence of, of cousin Charlotte and the kind of conflicted feelings that she has about like what is proper and what, uh, you know, Helena Bonham Carter should do, but then also like wanting her to be happy and realizing that she has messed it up and like all of her kind of conflicting impulses, they're all written so clearly on her face. Um, I think it's, and, you know, I don't think that we typically get to see Maggie Smith be so insecure, at least, you know, the way that I think of her. She's more typically very, you know, almost like imperious or stern or refined, always very high status. But here, especially in like the scene where she's trying to figure out how to pay the cab driver, where she's just kind of like a mess. And it's so funny. Um, and she's like so worried about offending everyone and is just kind of like caught in the middle of all of these people. Um, she's great. And her scenes with Judy Dench are just, I would watch hours and hours of the two of them just like gallivanting across Italy. 
Yeah, um, I wanted a full a full spinoff movie with those. Oh two. god, oh, do, do it now! Really. Do it now! <laughs> Them in their in their nineties, just playing yeah. out on the town. <laughs> um, you know how like the Tonys will sometimes do like a joint nomination yeah. for like actors who share a role. I think that they should have done a joint nomination for Maggie Smith and Judy Dench. I would in, swap in this movie because somebody for her. Yeah, just the two of them together are such a delight. Yeah. It's great. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, the the thing you're talking about, her conflicts, I, I think one of the things I love about this movie is her physicality. Because yes. you don't often think of Maggie Smith as like a physical actor because, you know, we think of her now. And in so many of her roles now, she's like sitting in a chair, <laughs> you know, sort of like saying. One of our great, yeah. one of our great chair actresses. Yeah. What is, sitting, in, sitting in a chair and saying quips, you know, like the she Gosford. She can sit like no other. Yeah. yeah, the Gosford Park and the, the, the Downton Abbey. Um, and she's, she's great. But like in this movie, she is very physically active. Like she's always like, you know, walking around and spinning around between doorways. And we mentioned this on our, on our retrospective, but she has two moments where she's like totally doing spins in a hallway because she's like trying to track both young people who might have sex or might kiss or something around her. <laughs> and it's just so, Heaven forbid. so the first time she does it, it is so funny. And the second time it's like way more serious and like not funny, but she has like such purpose of intent, even in her body language. But I think it's worth noting primarily because we were talking about how the camera's too close in children of a lesser God. And one of the things I love about James Ivory and to some extent about, uh, Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese, the other two uh, very famous directors we're talking about, is that they know when to pull the camera back. You know, you get some of Mary Elizabeth Mastantonio's body language is very important to some of those early scenes in Color of Money, and we get that. And with James Ivory, we get to see the whole actor acting, uh, which is always, like, a thrill. Maybe it's because I love stage work, but I love seeing it in the cinema, too, where I understand that their full body is in the performance. Um, so that's something that I love about Maggie Smith in this that is not usual for her later performances. And it's not just getting the the actor's whole body in the frame, but multiple actors in the frame. Yeah, yeah. The thing that's so great about A Room with a View, and also Hannah and Her Sisters especially, is how many shots there are where you can see actors reacting off each other, which is yeah. the best. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I talked about it a lot in our retrospective of A Room with View. Like, I love four shots and three shots. And Hannah and her sisters has tons of them, too, where you can totally track. Like, you could watch it. It's one of the reasons both movies are so rewatchable is, like, you can notice new things because there's so many different actors in the frames that you're like, this time through, I'm going to concentrate on, you know, <laughs> Julian fans in A Room with View. Or this time, I'm going to concentrate on Barbara Hershey and Hannah and her sisters. Um and that's it's just something I love about about group group acting. Yeah, I would I would add that one of some of the best parts of Maggie Smith's performance are just how she's negotiating Charlotte's interference within the other people person the other characters' lives, and especially as you mentioned, how she maneuvers Julian Sands throughout the film, but also uh, Daniel and Halliot. In the role of his father, how she, how Charlotte regards the Emerson, is is one of the things that most evolves in her performance, mm-hmm. and I think she does it wonderfully. Like you can never, while she certainly plants the season, I love that about the performance. 
you can really see a shift from her time in Italy to when she's at the Emerson's house at the end, sort of orchestrating Lucy's happy ending. And I think someone maybe watching the film for the first time or uh, knowing, meeting the story for the first time wouldn't guess that she's got such a central role in the end in solving this conundrum because she could just be the spinster archetype this obnoxious yeah. side character. obstacle rather than yeah. a solution, yeah. But both and, she, text, and she's gone for a big chunk of the middle, yeah. too. Yeah. But both the text and the actor just make her so much more. I, I love this performance. Well, we should probably get to Hannah and her sisters, um, which also has a very well-loved uh, performance. I mean, so many performances in this movie. <laughs> Um, the movie is called Hannah and Her Sisters, and you know I've heard people say that Diane Weiss has a leading role, but really, it's very much an ensemble piece. Like even Hannah doesn't have that much screen time because there's so many characters we're cracking. So I'm okay with the supporting designation in this case. Um, and I loved this movie in, in 1986. I was too young for it in 1986, but I still loved it. And that spinning around shot, um, it's funny that you mentioned that so early. I think it was Lynn that you mentioned it because the, the shot that, what? Oh, no, I, somebody else that I co-signed oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's with me. The oh, circular okay. shot. Yeah. yeah, the circular shot around the table um, where uh, Barbara Hershey's character is like hiding that she's had an affair with her sister's husband is one of the, was one of the formative cinephilia mo- moments for me because I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, like I was like I'd never seen it before in a movie, and it's so funny now because I see that shot in like a hundred TV shows and a hundred movies now, um, and I always think of Hannah and her sisters when I see it. I was, I maybe somebody did it before Hannah and her sisters, I don't know, but like it, it often seems completely not necessary for the scene or doesn't add to the scene anymore. It's just something directors do now. Um, but in that scene, it really brings all the drama out of that scene to circle. That, it's well. brilliant. Yeah, that that also just blew me away when in 1986 when I saw it. It just drew blood. I mean, I was just I was just devastated for all, and they they were all in such pain, and and none of them knew why what was yeah. going. Some of them knew, you know, they they all had their own knowledge of certain events that others didn't. And just and the the circular motion just brought that out and brought the audience into um, all these you know the swirl of emotions and um, I I I'll come right out and say I think Diane Weiss' performance is like one of my it's one of my favorite ever wins you know I think I think she richly deserved the Oscar um, I very much I wrote that I intensely identified with her angry defensive creation back when this debuted and I still do now even though both of us have figured out some stuff um she has she basically is a has is full of shame and fear about the possibility of never finding her niche mm-hmm. and 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 her place in in an artistic role and and you just really feel her her fear that that's just not going to happen and to me the her happy ending is when it turns out yeah you you can write you really do have a real flair and a real talent for writing not that she ends up with i'm not going to do the spoiler alert yeah yeah actually the kind of a gross ending anyway especially not knowing what we know now um yeah yeah i think it's i think it's a really wonderful performance so involving and just yeah 
yeah, I mean, I, I think she's phenomenal in this, but the thing that surprised me about it is that even though I'd seen it several times, I saw it mostly around the time it came out and a few years after I had seen it a few times, but I hadn't seen it in a really long time for this viewing. And I had always like, you know, performances can become reduced in your head. Um, even if you love a movie, you're like, oh, that was the lovable neurotic character that everybody fell in love with. But I was surprised this time through because it had really been at least 10 years since I've seen it, maybe 15, um, that I, that how angry she is in the movie. Even from the earliest scenes, and I thought that was so interesting because it, it, people always talk about the performance like it's lovable, and it is, but in a really interesting way because she's not she's not trying to get the audience to love her. It's just like the character creation is so strong. Yeah, you can't help it. If character. you had a sister like that, wouldn't you be mad too? Like I love the scene <laughs> where, where they're shopping <laughs> and she's telling and she's telling Hannah about like, well. You know, yeah, I've got this audition. I'm gonna sing, blah blah blah. And and Hannah's going, oh oh, you're gonna sing, huh? Oh right. And and Holly like just lashes out at her. You know, I sing, Hannah. Yeah, I I do sing. And you can just feel all her resentment at having this perfect, supposedly perfect sister. Was this the first time viewing for anyone, or had you all seen this before? Oh, I've seen it so many times. Yeah, this was the only one I had seen before. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. So, Jonathan, like, did you, or do you feel the same about Diane Weiss in it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I kind of spent the whole movie, which I had seen once before, but, you know, quite quite a few years ago, I spent the whole movie doing the, like, you know, the, like, Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's pointing at the TV. Oh, yeah. um, I just, I did that every couple minutes. I was like, oh, my God, Joanna Gleason. Guy <laughs> Abelman? And I'm just, I did that the whole time. Everyone is in this movie, yeah. <laughs> Lewis Black <laughs> has a little, he's in it. Lewis Black is in, has a tiny role. Yeah. Julia Louis Dreyfus, Marcus Simpson. Yeah. Uh, John Turturro. It's just it's this, like, murderer's row of, of actors. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a reason that we stand out in this really incredible ensemble. And I think it's because she plays the best off of everybody else. And you always know, what her relationship is to whoever she's talking to, no matter how complicated it is. Um, I think Lynn mentioned earlier um, how great it is to have movies about sibling relationships and how few there are that are that are this good. Um, and I think that that's it, that shot we were talking about earlier, that the spinning camera at the table, really highlights how complicated sibling relationships can be. And Diane Weiss can, at the same time, be furious at her sister and also love her and want to help her, but also need her help, but also not want to ask for it. And we conveys all of those things at the same time um, in her scenes with Mia Farrow, in her scenes with Woody Allen, in her scenes with Michael Caine, and, like, everybody. She's just – I always wanted more of her. Um, I think some of her best stuff is with Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the funniest scenes, sure. I mean, we've all had a best friend who we hate, um, <laughs> and that's who, that's who this is. Um, I really – we should be talking about Carrie Fisher in this movie all the time. Um, like alongside when Harry met Sally and like the pantheon of friends performances. Yeah. Um, the, the, the scene where they're, this, right, Jonathan, the scene where they're, where they're trying to negotiate, well, who's gonna, who are they gonna drop off first? You know? Oh, God. Such a classic. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, and Sam Watterson's so sleazy. The, yeah. the punchline of that scene. I hate April. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So my yeah. friends and I, for years, we we would we would all say, "No, why did I just say that? Why did I make that crack about the Guggenheim?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh my God. I, I, I want to hear like, uh, you know, these conversations, they begin about sporting actors, but um, I think it's fair game to talk about anything with the movie. I want to hear who everybody, what's everybody's favorite performance besides Diane Weiss in this movie? Because I'm going to start <laughs> because I'm throwing out the question. I love Max von Sydow in this movie so much. Um, I think it's like the, the worst. I know, but like in a perfect way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the character, not him. Yeah. It's just reminds me of a random thought I had watching these back to back. I was thinking, so his relationship with Lee, uh, with Barbara Hershey's character, is like maybe this is what Cecil and uh, Lucy's relationship would have turned into if. They oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, I mean, everyone was so good in this. I, you know, I actually, it's funny because for me, I think Barbara Hershey stood out this viewing, mainly because when I first watched this movie, and I've also only seen it once, although I really liked it the, the other time I've seen it, um, I just, I, I have a hard time with adultery subplots. It's not that I'm a Puritan. I just, it takes a lot for me to really empathize with um, with people who are in, you know, especially when it's with your own sister's husband, right? And but I guess I think she does a really good job sort of making bringing you into her headspace, too, about about that conflict, but about also, you know, that she really thinks that maybe this marriage is on the rocks. And she is attracted to Elliot, although I don't really know why. I mean, I think Michael Caine was very good. But anyway, um, um, I also remember thinking for a guy who has some sort of business, he seems to have a lot of time to take these long lunches. Um, but, yeah, with with Hershey, I guess, even though in some ways her, her sister of the three of them had previously been I don't want to say the least sympathetic but you know the one I had the hardest time relating to um I I think that shifted a little with this with this viewing um she does a lot to really to make you empathize with her um but I mean honestly everybody was was great in this so and and you know don't count on Mia Farrow either. I her sister it's, it's sort of I love all of her scenes with Holly just because that dynamic that some of you were talking about. It's, if you also look at it from her point of view, like if you look at it from Holly's point of view, oh my gosh, she's so annoying, she's so perfect. Everything she says seems to be a blow straight to my own ego. And at the same time, when you're looking at it from Hannah's perspective, like you can tell she doesn't mean any of this. Like she's actually well-intentioned. She's trying to help, but she just has a different view of things, and she's just not as good at understanding, like, these incredible vulnerabilities and insecurities that, that her sister is uh, is holding on to. So just watching that back and forth, um, I don't have any sisters, but I've, I've, I definitely recognize that, and it is just – too much painful recognition there, I think. They all, the, the sisters all feel so real to me. Like they, they really, all three of them, um, they really established a real bond. And um, uh, yeah, Hannah, uh, like, and Hannah's just, she's trying to keep Diane Weiss' character, you know, Hannah's trying to keep Holly from falling apart, you know, because she could split apart at any time, it feels like at times. And and she gets her in return. She gets you know kind of screamed at a lot, um, but it, it all just feels real. And yeah, my favorite other I don't know it might be the Max Mancito character because he's just like so great. He's so pretentious and insufferable, and you know. Um, but at the same time, he's right. You know, if, if Jesus were back, you know, he'd never stop throwing up. If you're if, if, if he were back in modern times, it's a great um, line. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, the movie is just so full of amazing lines and the, and the scenes with, and honestly, the scene where they're asking Joanna Gleason and her husband to be a, a sperm donor. It's just, it's so <laughs> funny. It's such a I wonderful totally scene. forgotten about that. Yeah. 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 What about, wonderful. Yeah. what about you? I have already sang Carrie Fisher's praises. Um, yeah. but I, I really love Maureen O'Hara, uh, as their mother. Um, who oh, is, not oh, Marina Sullivan. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, who is not in it very much, but you know, you can see immediately how she is each, how each of these three women are her daughters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like different facets of her all kind of reflected back. And she's just, she's so funny. And all of her arguments with the father about driving and auditions and just the idea of like these two old working actors going and shooting commercials and reminiscing about their glory days and, they're just such funny characters and they add such texture to, you know, this is the environment that these sisters came out of and this yeah. is why they're like this. Um, I think it, it's just, it's great. Yeah. What I was thinking about this time a lot was that remembering that, you know, this movie was in some ways way more personal with Mia Farrow because it's like her mother playing her mother and it was shot like all the Thanksgiving scenes are in Mia Farrow's apartment and like, Moses Sparrow is in it and like so it's just like all the the little kids are actually you know some of Mia's kids so you know it's very it's a very Mia Farrow movie even though in some ways her character is so recessive um even though she's the titular character Uh, but I also think Mia Farrow is really good in this oh yeah and also another supporting character that I really love is Mia Farrow's apartment that is a wonderful (laughs) a wonderful old New York apartment you know yeah. The set design is amazing in this one. Yeah. Um, first of all, I just want to say that that line about Jesus is especially funny. If you know Max One Zeta played Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I completely agree with what Liam said. I have three sisters. So, and I do recognize a lot of dynamics playing in and under sisters. And this is a film I've watched many times before. And this time around, while I was focused on Diane Weiss for obvious reasons, um, I was surprised how much I liked Mia Farrow because she was sort of the performance that was most undefined of the sort of five leads in my head. I had just very strong memories of Alan and Kane and Urshi and Weiss, obviously. But I really didn't remember a lot about Farrow. And she's so good at portraying someone that is unknowingly insensitive and doesn't do it out of meanness. As you say, the way she portrays someone that is trying to help, but is only causing more harm, even though it's completely not her intention, and her annoyance at other people's reactions to her, to to this facet of her, at the same time, but her frustration with herself too, during those scenes, especially with, with Weast, but also that that circular table scene and the, the way she interacts with Urshi is also great. Urshi is falling apart and she's so brisk with her while Ollie is actually concerned. I I thought it was fascinating. It's it was the, the performance I remembered the least. So maybe because that was the one that surprised me the most. Yeah. I think it might be like like you were saying earlier about room a room with a view. You could rewatch Hannah and just focus on different characters, different actors with each viewing and it's a, it, it, there's a lot of, lot in there. It's really a rich film. I feel. 
Well, we always end the SmackDown with a game where we recast. Um, so the object of this is you pick one of these five actresses and you put her in one of the other five actresses' roles, or if that doesn't work for you, you can substitute them for another role in one of these five movies. So who how about go first? How about Piper Laurie plays Tess Harper's role? I mean, Piper Laurie could bring a kind of like a insidious quality to it. You know, she, cause Piper can, you know, she can be a very acerbic actress. You know, she plays some pretty wicked characters. I think she might bring a more needling quality. She might have, you know, or she might have wanted to play it broad also, cause she, she'll certainly do that as well. Like in Carrie, <laughs> she, you know, she will, she did that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, and possibly Tess Harper playing the Piper Laurie character. Maybe Tess could have brought some of that tenderness Oh, uh, from the movie Tender Mercies, if you've ever seen it, she's really very different in that film. Maybe she could have done Piper's, played a mom, you know, trying to, struggling to get to reconcile with her daughter. How about you, Claudio? I have two answers for this. One is within the time range of the film. The other is sort of independently of age. I would love to see Diane Weiss and Maggie Smith switch roles. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I think they both, though in very different registers, they are playing with the same sort of tragic comic verve. Mm. And having watched a lot of their films over the years, I think they're really suited to these characters and I wonder what different shades each one of them because despite the similarities of character they're very different actresses what each one of them would bring out like would perhaps Smith give a more imperious note to to Ollie or would she dig deeper into the insecurities may would um we perhaps bring more warmth to to Charlotte's eventual uh, about face if for this regarding age, I would love to see Weast playing the Piper Laurie role. She, I think, after watching Rabbit Hole, I think she's great at playing mothers and suggesting histories, thorny histories that go beyond the limits of the film. And I think she'd just kill it. You and with very limited screen time. Yeah, you stole my idea, Weast <laughs> and Children of Lester God. And, and the reason that I would like to see that is that she... All of Weiss Mother's characters are very loving and warm. And so I think it would, like, from from the early days of her career, like Parenthood and Lost Boys um, to Rabbit Hole, and I think it would be really interesting to see her play a mother that had a much more tense relationship with a child that she kind of resented. I think that would be really interesting to see. How about you, Jonathan? I think that I would shift... Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio over into Hannah and her sisters. I think she has the right energy for a Woody Allen script. Um, I don't, I don't know that Holly would be the right role for her, but I do think that that would change the sister dynamic in an interesting way because she is a lot younger and she reads a lot younger. Um, to me, watching Hannah, not actually knowing the relative ages of of the three actresses. Um, Pharaoh, Hershey, and Weist all seem very close in age yeah. to me, where it's like hard to tell kind of what the order is. Um, and I think that having Holly, having Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio as Holly playing so much younger 
and, you know, always asking for money, not really having much direction at first and like what she wants to do with her life. I think that would have amplified those those pieces and maybe maybe made it a little bit easier to understand why Hannah seems so exhausted by her. Um, I have a sister who is much younger than me. Um, and we do not have that kind of relationship. But, I was going to say, are you confessing that she... <laughs> no, no, no. But, <laughs> but you know, it. there is... Some, we're eight years apart, and so there is sometimes just, like, a, a distance because we're almost different generations. We're in totally different stages of life, and I think that that would be an interesting dynamic to, to tease out in the movie. Um, I also always forget that Barbara Hershey is in Hannah and Her Sisters because when I glance at the posters very quickly, she looks a lot like Sigourney Weaver. Um, And so now I'm imagining Sigourney Weaver as Barbara Hershey as well. (laughs) How about, how about Master Antonio at, um, in the Hershey role? I bet she could pull that off too very well. Yeah. Yeah. Lynn. What do you think? All, you, you guys keep taking what all my kids. I was also thinking <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Massachusetts is maybe one of the sisters. If I have a brilliant thought, I'll come up with it later. <laughs> okay. I understand why it wouldn't have worked narratively, but I do think it would have been interesting to have Piper Laurie be in The Color of Money, not in the Master Antonio role, but in the, like, Newman love interest role, yeah. since that is more or less what she, that's what she plays in The Hustler. Other um, yeah. Her character would not yeah, have stuck around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she was back there at the Oscar ceremony with. with yeah. Um, I'm sure they hung out at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this was so great to talk to you all about. Um, as we're going, um, tell the listeners where they can find you, and um, if you have another '86 movie you'd like to shout out, something you love from 1986. Once again, thank you to Claudio Alves. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I love this and I love this lineup, despite my dislike for Crimes of the Heart. Um, an 86 movie I'd like to shout out, maybe Romer's uh, En Vert, also known as Summer. I think it's brilliant. It's got one of my favorite endings in all of cinema. So if you haven't seen it, I would recommend that. You can find me on The Film Experience, also on Magazine HD and the Belgian website Photogenie. I also work in theater in set and costume design, and I have a show that's going to open in September in Lisbon called The Lisbon Sisters, and it's inspired by Jeff Eugenides' The Virgin Suicides. Very cool. Uh, Lynn Lee, also from The Film Experience, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm not really so much a social media person. I, I do blog very sporadically at lily.blogspot.com, but really just come look for me at the film experience. Um, I'm blanking on 1986 films. I, I joke that before 1995, my film viewing had tons and tons of gaps just because that was when I really started to see a lot of movies. But um, but it's, it's been really interesting just revisiting these five. I think they give a really interesting snapshot of that year. Um, in movies. A lot of them are contemporary, actually, too, I noticed this time. Yeah. I, I don't know, Crimes of the Heart, if it's supposed to be contemporary, or the period's weird there, but it feels like a lot of these are giving major 80, 86 vibes, though. <laughs> and thank you to Jonathan for joining us for the fan first time. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I guess what the 86 movie that I will shout out is, I'm scrolling through my list, to see what jumps out at me. 
Um, I really love uh, Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, mm. um, which is fabulous. Um, yeah, his debut film, it is great. Uh, a great Brooklyn movie, uh, as many of his are. Um, so, strong recommend. Um, it's always funny to remember that Spike Lee and, like, Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese were all making movies at the same time. Um, you know, I feel like sometimes we think of them as, as happening in different eras. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks can find me uh, screaming about elections and voting uh, on Twitter.com uh, at JMDSJD. Um, I'm also going to be appearing in an upcoming uh, documentary on CNN with Santa Bash about uh, restrictive election legislation that's been passing through the states, not to like put a damper on, on this party. <laughs> um, and uh, when I am not doing that, uh, I write about movies uh, for roughcutcinema.com. Thank you for joining us. And then uh, finally, Robert Kirby. Uh, yeah, well, also shout out to Jonathan. Yeah, keep, give him hell. You know, keep keep up the good work. You know, we're, we really need you. Um, yeah, you can try find me. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd even, uh, and basically at Rob Kirby Comics. That just that's the catch-all. It'll find you can find me there, and I have actually have a website called you guessed it, robkirbycomics.com, and, and I'm also on Patreon if you want to give that a look. Um, and my 1986 movie, I'm going to say Parting Glances. That's Bill Sherwood's uh, indie gay drama, which is a very wonderful movie um, that came out in that little mini cycle of 1986 queer movies along with Desert Hearts and My Beautiful Laundrette. Um, and uh, you can see a baby, Steve Buscemi, playing a gay guy with AIDS and it's, it's, it's really a very good film and I hope people will check it, check that out. Yeah. I, I, I co-sign those recommendations. <laughs> um, I want to shout out before we go to uh, Peggy Sue got married just because it holds a special place in my heart. Francis Coppola's Peggy Sue got married starring Kathleen Turner. And of course, James Cameron's aliens, uh, those movies that I love a lot from 86. Um, it was such a pleasure to have um, all of you on. And the winner is Diane Weaston.
my mom, my brothers, my family, and my dearest friend, Sam Cohn. Thank you very much. Thank you.